0: Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabbard. There was this uh, king in the ancient world, and he commissioned a crown to be made for himself, right? He's, so he's royalty, and he he takes like 20 pounds of gold, and he and he commissions a, you know, a goldsmith and he says, "Hey, I, go make a crown out of all of this gold." Well, he gets the crown back and he puts it on his head and he can't seem to shake the feeling that he might have gotten cheated. He, he he seems to think that even though the, the the crown is is 20 pounds, it may not be pure gold. The 20 pounds of gold that he gave to that goldsmith to go make it. He can't shake the feeling, so he finally gives this crown, this gold crown, to a mathematician that lives in his city by the name of Archimedes. So Archimedes is now the stressed one because the king has said, figure out what's in this, if it's pure gold or not. And he spends like two weeks just stressing He's walking around just like, how am I supposed to figure out what's in this metal, if it's pure gold or not? Well, one day, he finds his way to the public bathhouse, because that's how they did it in Greek culture, and he goes in, and he gets in a bath that is filled to the brim, and when he gets in, he sees the water come overflowing out of the bath, and And be displaced by him. And it hits him. And he runs out of the bathhouse completely naked down the street, screaming, Eureka, I have found it. Right? So, what he did was that then he went back and he got the crown and he got 20 pounds of gold and he put each of them in a thing of water and he measured how much water was displaced. Because different metals have different volumes, even though they might have the same weight. He was able to determine that the goldsmith had, in fact, cheated the king. He had put metals in the crown that took up more volume for the same weight, and he had kept some of the gold for himself. See, all Archimedes needed was the right test. He had to find the test that exposed what was on the inside, that exposed what the crown was actually made of. See, we know that tests expose what's on the inside. We grow up in a culture that tests knowledge all the time. You go to school, and they teach you things in theory, and then they test you on it because they want to see how much of that knowledge is on the inside now. Now, the funny thing for me is that sometimes you might have an open note test, which really just tests how good you are at taking notes. And sometimes you have an open book test, which tests how good you are at flipping pages. But, uh, and, and quite often, we don't even think the tests that we take that aren't either of those things are actually that good at testing what's on the inside of us, right? Some of you don't take tests well. And you're the people screaming your entire academic career, this isn't how I learned, and this isn't how I show that I learned, right? And then there's always the debate between people who just want to take the test and the people who want to write the paper, right? And why is that? Because there's a, a right test that shows what's on the inside, what you actually retained. See, in the book of Genesis, God goes to Abraham, and it says he tested him. He said, I want you to take your son Isaac, I want you to take him up to the mountain I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. This test by God was to see if Abraham trusted God and to see if he loved God more than he loved Isaac. It was a test to see what was, on the Abra- what was on the inside of Abraham. Now, do you think God couldn't see what was on the inside of Abraham? You think God was confused? Why does God test us? He tests us to show everyone else what's on the inside of us. See, when God tested Abraham, he showed the whole world that Abraham loved God. The other part of that story is he showed how trustworthy he is to put our faith in him. God comes through in that story. doesn't let Abraham down. God reveals what's, what was inside of Abraham and glorified himself. Do you ever wonder how much, if at all, you actually believe in the Bible, in Christianity? Here's the thing. We're told in the Bible that all it takes, all it takes is, Is the faith of a mustard seed, right? This really tiny seed, right? So we're told, like, that's it, that's all it takes, because it's not about your effort, it's not about what you put into it. So if that's all it takes, why are we constantly having this existential crisis of, like, I don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I'm a believer, like, how do I find out? The question is, how do we test what's on the inside? How do we see? What we actually believe. God wants to expose what's in your heart. He wants to glorify Himself by you living out your faith. Here's the problem it takes being tested. No one likes being tested, it's stressful. Being tested inherently means it's going to push you, it's going to stretch you, it's going to be uncomfortable. But let me tell you this. It is way more spiritually stressful and uncomfortable to not know where you stand with God. That is a stress I don't want to deal with. I would rather take the tests. See, we're in a book called Malachi, and I've called the series Exposed because in the book of Malachi, God is making accusations against Israel to test what's in their hearts. See, last week I told you that there are three basic layers about which you see the world. You believe in things about God, theologically. You believe in things of about people, socially. And you believe in things about stuff economic. Now, the biblical point of view is that what I believe about God shapes how I view people and determines how I use my stuff. The worldview of earth, of sinful humans, is that to get more stuff, I need to use more people and forget about God. So, last week, as we looked at that mentality... We were looking at how they treated people, that middle layer. Malachi was saying, do you want to know how I know that you don't love God? Because you're spiteful and hurtful and hateful to the people around you that God has commanded you to love. And this week, he's going to go one step further into that lowest level. He's going to say, do you want to know how I know that you don't love God? Because of the way you treat your things. Because of the way that you idolize your things. The way that you steal what God has given you for yourself. So the first thing we're going to see is the test. God is going to issue a test. And he's going to show the inward condition or the purity of their hearts based on how they use their stuff. Look with me at Malachi chapter 3 starting in verse 8. Would anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. I'm going to stop right there. I want you to understand, one of the things we've seen in the book of Malachi is that a lot of the turns of phrases that are used in this book are not, um, they don't read in the English with the intent that the original language has for them. And so I've been giving you guys essentially the paraphrase, if you will, of what some of these phrases are meant to be read as. This First verse, it's supposed to be read like this Could anyone rob God? The answer to that question in an ancient Israelite's mind would have been, That's absurd. We're going to do stick up heaven? Like, you can't rob God. That doesn't even make sense. And immediately following that reaction in their brains to, No, of course you can't rob God, God says, Well, you're doing it. You're robbing me. You're stealing from me. And they would have said, Whoa, wait, what? How? And then I need you to see what this question says. There, how have we? It, it should read like this. What do I have that's yours? What do I have that's not mine? Right? And so God, He tells them, You are cheating me in tithes and offerings. Now, We need to talk about this word tithes um, briefly. This is not a money lesson, but it's important that we understand that word because it's going to deeply affect our understanding of the rest of the passage. Now, for some of you, there's this kind of cynical view when when we get to the word tithe, it's like, oh, brother, here we go again. God always wants my money. The church is always after my money. Okay, let's get some things straight. First of all, It wasn't just money. In the Old Testament, if you look specifically in Deuteronomy 14, and there's a couple places in Leviticus, we see that the tithes or the tenths, the 10%, was paid on everything. Everything. Now, you might have thought I was going to backtrack this idea that God wants some of your money. No, no, no. God owns everything you have. He wants tents on all of it. I want you to understand that this is not about money. It's about who owns your entire life and your entire existence. It is in God's hands. There's also evidence that it's not just 10%. What we see in the Old Testament was actually broken up. It was more like 23% a year. And that 23%, it was split into all kinds of different functions. It was all meant for this purpose. It was an acknowledgement by people that everything we have, we got from God. I want you to understand something. If everything in the created universe belongs to God, God doesn't need your money. You need his. You are the one being given things by God. He is not scrounging for the tents that you have to offer so that he can get done what he needs to get done. That's not the way this works. Your tents, your tithes, are acknowledging where everything you have comes from. So why do we tithe? There were several reasons to tithe. One was for uh, the temple practice. I mean, if you come to church and you value church and you value the things that go on at church, uh, we want you to contribute to that. On top of that, your heart will follow where your money goes, where you spend the most of your money, that is the thing that you will care about. So if you are not putting any money into church, your heart will not be here. The other thing is that uh, tithes. There were some tithes. Did you know this? There were some tithes in the Old Testament that were consumed by the the person tithing. They would actually throw a feast and a banquet with other uh, Israelites and with other with the Levites, and they would they would share a feast. It would be kind of like if you said, man. God has been so good to me, I'm taking all my best friends out for steak, and when they thank me, I'm going to say, don't thank me. Thank God, because he's the one that gave me what I have to be able to bless you with this steak dinner, right? So, But I want you to think about that for a second. The perception in your head is just, God, just take, 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 take. And the reality is, there's evidence in the Bible that some of the tithes were meant for kind of like a party. God said, go treat your friends. Go, go eat a banquet and worship me because I'm the one that provided all that, that gave you everything you have here. We see that uh, there was parts of the tide that were designed just to help those in need. Listen, do you love people or do you love money? Let me ask you this. When was the last time you spent more on a friend's need than you do on yourself? When was the last time that you went without something you wanted Because you needed to help someone else get something they needed. That's what the tithes were for. They were to teach us to save money for the purpose of loving others. We also see that part of the tithes were for you to do your own service to God. How many times do we get called to go on a mission trip and we go, it's going to be tricky because I have zero dollars in my bank account. What if instead... Because you know that God wants to call you to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. You were always putting away a little bit of money so that the day day God says, I want you to go on a mission trip, you said, oh, that's great. Because I've got the money I need for the ticket right here. No scrounging. You were faithful. You expected God to call you. Here's the reality. He will call you. Do you believe that? Are you going to act on it when he calls you, or are you going to prepare for that now? And then the last reason is, it's good for you. You know what happens to people who hoard all their stuff and all of their their money? They rot from the inside out. When you cling to tightly everything that you have in this life, it will eat you completely to the core you will disintegrate. I want you to keep in mind, this is not just talking about money. This is talking about everything. Listen, I, 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 because of this is the age group I'm talking to all the time, I've had a lot of conversations with people in this room about quiet times, about when to have them. And there is this absolutely true thing where having your quiet time in the morning or, or not is, is not a sinful act, right? If you want to have your quiet time in the evening, I do not think that there is, I'm not going to find the verse like morning. It says, right, 6 a.m. quiet time. That's No, here's my point. Are you tithing on your time? Because here's the reality. I can't get anything done with my time. I can't use it appropriately. I can't use it productively. I can't do anything with my time if I think I'm the one in control of it. But when I wake up in the morning and I tithe on, on my time. And I go before God and I say, God, I need you to breathe today. I need you to accomplish anything. I see God's blessing on the rest of my time because I honored Him with what He gave me right up front. Do you honor God? Do you tithe on your effort? Do you care more about your favorite television show than praying? for someone in your own family who's in need? See, oftentimes, we have people in our lives that are in dire situations. And we come to church and we say, I got a prayer request. I need need prayer for this person. And maybe that week, let's be generous. Maybe you spent 15 minutes every morning praying for that person. And you spent an hour on Instagram and two hours that night, binging your favorite Netflix show. And whatever else we fill our time with. What does that tell you about your time? What does that tell you about your effort? What does that tell you about what you care about? Now, I'm not telling you, lock yourself in a cave and become just a prayer monk. Right? Like, I understand you have to, you have to do stuff. But where is your priority? What if, what if even just before you sat down to try to just decompress and just watch a little bit of this show just to kind of let your heart rate calm down. But what if before that you went to the Lord in prayer and you offered up to him the people that you care most about in your life? Do you tithe on your love? Do you tithe on what you give to people around you? those same things do you tithe on listen i'm 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 guilty of this i have a truck do you know how many times people ask me to help them move and i will avoid it like the plague and that is really a problem why do you think god gave me a truck so i could bless other people so that when somebody else needs a truck and they don't have one i can be there for them so the question is am i going to tithe off of that truck, or is that just for me? Is that just to bless me and be used for my purposes? Look at verse nine. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the entire nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that they may so that there may be food in my house, and put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. If I do not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruit of, of your ground, nor will the vine of your field prove fruitless to you, says the Lord of armies. Okay. First of all, what curse? What curse are we talking about? I, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing. If you go look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, it uh, it is just chock full of curses, uh, 38 uh, Deuteronomy 28 38 through 45 is the one is the part of that curse that seems to be directly correlated to this but here's what I want you to look at in verse 11 he says then I will rebuke the devourer for you in Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 17 we see the first curse on man says then to Adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which i commanded you saying you shall not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you with hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you yet you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground because you were taken because from it you were taken for you are dust And to the dust you shall return. See, if you tell God, all this is mine, I earned it, I'll control it, I'll provide for me. He will let you. Because you will be under the curse that makes your actions and your efforts fruitless. You will pine away to accomplish things that will always seem out of Of grasp. So you really have two outcomes there. You will either get everything you've ever wanted and it will drain the joy of life from you, or you'll toil away and you'll never have anything to show for it at all. I want you to understand something about both those outcomes. They look different to us, but they are the exact same thing. People who have what we think is everything. That they could have ever wanted. The rich and the famous. Why do you think the rich and the famous. Are the people doing the most drugs. Committing suicide. Ending up on TMZ. It's because their lives are miserable. They have toiled after everything they ever wanted. They've even gotten it. And they have nothing to show for it. It is only from the outside. That that looks appealing. But it leaves you. Empty on the inside. God says, but if you want to produce something, if you want something eternal, fruitful, joyful, and fulfilling, do it my way and I will rebuke the curse. I will tell the ground to produce fruit for you. God says, put me to the test. Whoa, whoa now, whoa now. Put me to the test? No, 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 you can't trick me. I know the part where Jesus says, he says, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. Preacher can't get me with that one. I know you don't test God. Okay, let's talk about this word test because we have a huge, huge hang up with this word test. Okay, I need you to see something. The Bible says that God doesn't tempt, and yet we see that he tested Abraham. The Bible says, don't test the Lord your God, and yet here God is saying, test me right? I want you to hear this phrase. If you've been at Evergreen longer than a day, you've probably heard this phrase. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. I can see a lot of mouths moving. Here's the reality. We have to understand what the Bible means, okay? What does it mean right here when he says, test me in this way? Well, let's look at the context. What is happening in Malachi? In Malachi, God is testing the Israelites' hearts to expose what's really on the inside. And in this moment, he's getting so fed up. For me, this is the climactic moment in Malachi because he is so fed up. He says, I see what's on the inside of you. It's that you doubt me. It's that you don't walk in faith. It's that you say, I'm not paying attention. So fine, you test me. See what's on the inside of me. See, if you don't do things my way, that I won't care for you, and love for you, and provide for you. See, God says, you fail every test I put you through, but go ahead, test me. I will never fail you. I will never let you down. I will never not be, I I will never be exposed as something other than what I've said I am. This is a God that is powerful enough to do exactly what he says he'll do. I want you to think about it like this. When God says here, test me in this way, who's actually being tested? We are. God is consistent. He's going to act the way he's going to act. Nothing's going to change about God. What is happening is that he's saying, trust me. That's the test. Are you going to actually live this out? Be who God has told us to be. Follow God the way we're told to follow God. The test is on us And whether or not we'll trust Him. Do you actually believe that God is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do? How do you know? How do you know if you believe it? You put it to the test. God says, see if I won't open the floodgates for you. See if I won't fill it up till it's overflowing. Now, I want to explain this too. See, here in Tulsa, we are in like the epicenter of the health and wealth gospel. So let's talk about what the blessing is for a second, okay? Why did why did signs and miracles happen in, in the four gospels when Jesus walked the earth? Why does God give us good things and bless us? Because every single one of those things is to serve, to point us to him and to the real blessing. What's the real blessing? That you owed God for your sin eternal punishment, and instead of that, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he suffered a death he didn't deserve to die for you, and then he did something you can't possibly do on your own. He came back to life to prove that he was God, to show you that it was done, and to offer you a free pass through him into heaven. I need you to understand, that's the blessing. That is what we get. Everything else just serves as a reminder. It's just to point us to him. The question is, are the blessings pointing to Jesus, or is Jesus just how you get more stuff? God won't bless you with an idol. God won't give you something that you will immediately worship in his place. Is God withholding from you a relationship, a career, just success in general? It's because you've made those things more important to you than He is. See, the blessing is that I see in my life that it's making an internal, an eternal impact, and I'm watching God meet my needs in the process. Look at verse 12. All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. See, what last week we saw that Edom has just been wiped out. God said, they'll never come back. But he's saying, for my children, you will be a delightful land. You will be blessed. It's even better than that. This language is the same imagery we see of heaven. See, the blessings that we receive, they're eternal. They happen later, and faith is living now based on what's going to happen later that's what faith is God has laid out the test now let's look at the reactions first there's the world worldly reaction look at verse 13 your words have been arrogant against me says the Lord yet you say what have we spoken against you you have said it is pointless to serve God, and what benefit is it, of, is it for us that we have done what he required and, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of armies? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also put God to the test and escape punishment. Penn Gillette, famous magician from uh, Penn and Teller Magicians, he, uh, he, he said this quote one time. Uh, he said, believing there is no God gives me more room for belief in family, people, love, truth, beauty, sex, jello, and all the other things I can prove. And it makes this life the best life I will ever have. Big oof. You know, he's right this is the best life he will ever have. And that is really sad. Because the reality is, for those of us who believe on the name of Jesus Christ, this doesn't even begin to cover how great heaven will be. Nothing here compares to what it will be to walk with the Lord someday, to see his face, and to have no sin in between us. God says here, you test me in your arrogance. This is the bad kind of testing. Okay, let's talk about this. The first kind is, uh, is God saying, see if I won't do exactly what I, what I say I'll do. This testing is when we say, see, God won't do what he says he'll do. You see how that's different? See, the testing that we see Jesus say not to do is when we back God into a corner and presume on Him. It's when you go out and you buy the car that you can't afford, and you go, I guess God will have to provide. That's not how it works. See, true faith is when you buy the car that God told you to buy, and you watch Him provide for it. That's a very different place to be. The whole world tells us it's pointless to follow God. For what? For being in heaven later, floating on a cloud, plucking a harp, which, by the way, is not what heaven's going to be. Right? But they tell us, like, what's the point? Why are we following that? Listen, you know what I'm saying? If there's no heaven, if I don't get to be with the Lord someday, what good is all the beauty and sex and jello that this world has to offer? It's pointless. It's all pointless if there's nothing after this. It's a really bad deal. Look instead at the eternal reaction. See, G.K. Chesterton was a brilliant English writer from the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s. He was known as the Prince of Paradox. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy in 1909 where he explained how he had gone from being an atheist to a uh, believing Christian. It's an amazing book, and I highly recommend it. And he once said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. He also said, A dead thing can go with a stream, but only a living thing can go against it. See, we are swimming upstream against a culture of dead. And only if we have the Holy Spirit do we have the life to go against it. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened attentively and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of armies, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will have compassion for them just as a man has compassion for his own son who serves him. So, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between ones who serve God, between between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. See, those who feared the Lord believed Him. They spoke to one another, they lived it out, they testified. You know what that's called? Church. It's the body of believers coming together and testifying that we serve the Lord. That's what we're doing here. That's what what it means. But look at this. It says, God listened and heard. I need you to understand, he's not just being redundant. He listened and he heard. No. That word heard in the Old Testament, it means he acted on it. God didn't just hear them. He acted on what he heard. He acted on their behalf. See, here's the thing. We're all on our way to a really bad place without God doing anything. We get ourselves there all on our own. It takes an act of God to stop that. And God acted in time and space when Jesus died and rose again so that we could be written in a a book of life where God will remember us on the last day, another moment of time and space, where he will welcome us into his presence and make everything right again. The reality is, we desperately need God to act on our behalf. The Bible is full of reminders. Phrases like, remember your servant. Do not forsake your servant. Act on my behalf. It's believers crying out to God and saying, without you, everything is going the wrong direction. Don't forget me. Don't leave me in this. And I want you to notice what is this entire passage about? This section that we've been talking about is talking about our possessions. And where does it end? That those who fear the Lord become his possessions. We are precious to him. He scoops us up and protects us because we are his own children. We live in a broken world, but we all know that the model is that parents will do anything to protect their kids. And God is the most perfect parent there could ever be. He acts to save them. See, when you give your tithes, when you orchestrate the stuff in your life to serve people instead of people getting you more stuff, It shifts your entire focus. You begin to acknowledge to God that you got everything from him and you are going to serve him with everything you have. And when you do that, he rebukes the curse and saves you. In return, you get God himself. You guys have heard me say this, but there's not a Ferrari in the world that's better than being in the presence of an almighty, perfect God. What are you striving for? What are you trying to get to? In verse 18, we see the Old Testament version of this phrase. They will be known by their fruit. What is the fruit of your life? Is it eternal? Is it about the things that God is about? Are you doing anything daily, weekly, monthly that has an eternal impact? Or are you just pining away, toiling away against the dirt for things that are going to burn up someday and be worthless? I want you to understand this is not a do more lesson. This is not a Go out, be better people. No, the idea is that how you are acting shows what you believe about God. And you need to ask yourself if what you believe about God makes you his friend or his enemy. His possession or something he forgets. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It tells us to present our entire bodies to the Lord. To give ourselves as an offering to Him. You thought 10% of your money was a lot? The Bible's actually asking for way more than that. It's asking you to give God your very self. But what could be a safer place than being possessed by a God of all power, infinite power and infinite knowledge, who loves you intimately. There's not a thing you possess that won't disown you in a dangerous situation. But the God of all the universe, He will never let you come to true harm. He will never let you face existing apart from him nothing i own is going to save me nothing i own even cares about me maybe my dogs they still have limited impact over my eternity By limited i mean none the reality is if you are not giving yourself with the way you treat your things to the god of all the universe you're wasting your time Examine your heart by the way you love people and the way you use stuff.